The movie is Forrest Gump tomorrow, Thursday the 5th. Nightlife is at 6.30. Charlie Slick, local synthesizer god, is at 8. And the movie is Answer This. Uh, also Thursday, Alex Bell Hodges New Orleans Jazz Trio is at the Ravens Club at 9 p.m. for free. It's now 4.30, so I'm going to let events information go at that. i got to tell you, events information is brought to you by Current Magazine, Ann Arbor's Entertainment Monthly, available around town at many locations. Events info can be heard daily in the morning at 1.30, 4.30, 7.30, and 10.30, and also at 1.30 p.m., 4.30 p.m., and 8.30 p.m. right here on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. It's 4.30. It's time for the Living Writers. Arbor, welcome. You're listening to the Living Writers Show. My name is T. Hetzel, and today I'm sitting with Nick Santora, who's come to town to f- to Borders um, for an event for his his book, his new book, his first book, Slip and Fall. Um, uh, this show, this this segment of Living Writers is is pre-taped, um, so hopefully you had a chance to catch Nick while he was in town. Hopefully, uh, hopefully, <laughs> and. Uh, and let's see. So as way of introduction, I'm going to read a little bit here about Nick, writer and co-executive producer of the hit Fox drama Prison Break. Nick Santora is a born and bred New Yorker. After graduating from Columbia Law School in 1996, Nick practiced law full time in New York City until 2001 
when he moved to Los Angeles with his family to pursue a career as a professional writer. This decision was spurred by Nick's first screenplay winning Best Screenplay of the Competition at the 2001 New York International Independent Film Festival. Since arriving in California, Nick has written and or produced for several television series such as The Sopranos, Law and Order, and The Guardian. He has enjoyed writing for a living substantially more than litigating for a living. We might hear more about that <laughs> then. <laughs> and uh, and it says here that Nick is thrilled to be able to share his life with his wonderful wife and their beautiful daughter. And as I said tonight, well, um, actually are tonight, but in radio time, this is pre-taped, uh, but Nick's in town uh, with his book, uh, A Borders book, uh, Slip and Fall. Um, so welcome, Nick. Thanks Hi. for coming. Thank you for having me. <laughs> and so, and you were saying that uh, this is sort of, you, you took the red eye, haven't slept for a couple of days. I haven't. Um, I woke up yesterday morning at around a quarter to six in the morning, Thursday. And, and that's because I have a three-year-old who had a bad night sleeping for some reason. And, uh, you know, I got maybe three hours of sleep that night, and I took the red eye Thursday night, landed this morning, and I have been up ever since because I've been running around doing events for, for the book. Right, right. And, and, there's, <laughs> and, and it's a Borders book. So you're, are you going to all the Borders stores in the area or just to the downtown Borders? I'm going to be at the downtown Borders. Is, uh, I'm not familiar with this area. Downtown Borders is the one right near where we are right yeah, now. Yeah, just a couple blocks away. Like the college Borders, mm-hmm. one near the campus. Yeah, mm-hmm. I'm going to be there. And um, I'm going to be reading for my books, signing my book, answering questions about, you know, Prison Break and writing for The Sopranos and Law and & Order and The Guardian. And even I, I sometimes I even get I, I created an executive producer reality show called Beauty and the Geek. <laughs> and sometimes I even, you know, you're in the, the highbrow world of literature and then someone asks you a Beauty and the Geek question that kind of <laughs> takes the air out of the room. Exactly. <laughs> Actually, I have one of those questions for later. So. Hit me. Hit me. <laughs> So, yeah, hopefully we'll, we'll have time to, yeah. The answer know. to the question is yes, I'll do anything for money. <laughs> if, that's, if that's, how did Beauty and the Geek come about? It's hence the move to Hollywood, right? Yeah, exactly. The selling of the soul. Especially since um, the first thing that the your publicity um, says, and, and pretty much you made clear when I met you in the right. hall a few moments before, was that um, you might live in Hollywood, but you're a New Yorker. Yeah. You make that pretty, pretty yeah. clear. Well, if you can't hear it in my voice, <laughs> right. down the hall, you're like, wow, someone from New York's down the hall. Because, yeah, um, I'm a New Yorker. That's that's where I grew up. That's my life. That's where all my family and friends are. But if you want to make a living as a professional writer in film and television, especially television, you really have to be there. That's where the work is. Uh, our goal is to eventually go back home. Uh, you know, uh, I don't know when. I don't know how. Um, there are shows that are written and produced in New York, and if I can create one that becomes a hit and it can run for a million years, like a Law and Order or something like that, then we'll be back home. And is, so, is that something that you're really you're working towards now? It's creating a show. Yeah, okay. I, yeah. I'm in the pro, you know, I'm in the process of of I have lots of ideas of things I want to develop, and and I recently I can't say the name of the book, That's but fine. a book of a best selling author, a very famous book, an incredibly talented author has been uh, presented to me asking me if I would be interested in maybe developing that into a television series. That would be exciting, especially now as an author, working with another author's material would be a challenge to bring your own vision to it, but to keep the author's vision pure as well. Right, right. Yeah. And and, and you understanding both sides of things then. I don't understand anything. <laughs> Theoretically. <laughs> I pretend to understand yeah, exactly. a lot. 
exactly. <laughs> well, as long as you've got the facade intact, right? Then yeah, it, Hollywood's all about facades. <laughs> the other side of the Hollywood sign is just sticks holding it up. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but still, bright lights, bright lights. Yeah. Um, well, well, let's let's maybe let's talk a little bit about um, how how so. Tell us a little bit about your history with writing. I know that sounds like a terribly broad question, but no, you, yeah. you were in law, right? And then you entered, for some reason, you wrote a, a screenplay. Well, yeah. I, I, my, my history with writing starts, I think, like most writers, as early as you can remember. You know, Like I, it's a tiny tot? I, I'm one of, I think, many writers, actually, that can remember the first thing they ever wrote. What, what is it? I wrote I wrote a poem when I was six years old called "I Would Like to Be an Orange," <laughs> and I remember writing. And you have it here with I, you today. I don't have it here with me today. I have it. It's you know I have it memorized. I'm not going to say it, but <laughs> no, please do. It's, please. It's, it's the silliest little poem in the world. But I was I, I, rem, I actually remember the moment. I was lying in bed. I was six years old. My mom was tucking my sister into the next room, and I started thinking of this poem. And my mom came in. I'm like, Mom, I made up a poem. And she said, what is it? And I said, I, it's, it's completely spastic and preposterous. But I said, I would like to be an orange, to have some orange skin. I would like to be an orange, to have a lovely grin. I would like to be an orange, to be washed and to be dried. I'm always an orange. I'm an orange inside. I swear to God, that thing is burned into my brain. I can't get rid of the poem. And it, well, the weird thing is, I don't like oranges. So I, I have no idea why I came up with the idea of that stupid poem. But it's the first thing I ever wrote, and I remember it to this day, and I was in first grade, I remember in second grade when the teacher went around the room, what do you want to be? I said, I want to be an author. Um, it's all I've ever wanted to do, but I, I got off the path for a long time. But because you felt like there was, um, it was more practical to study law, or? I, 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 you know, it's, it's weird because it, it, it's going to come out like it's my parents' fault, and it's not. My parents um, worked so hard for my sister and I to have opportunities, educational opportunities, um, professional opportunities that they never had. Um, my dad never had an opportunity to go to college. My mom didn't have an opportunity to go to college. She went, she, my mom eventually graduated from college when she was in her 50s, and I'm so proud of her. She yeah, went back to school. That's very cool. It was super cool, and it took her a long time to do it, and she would work all day and at night take classes, um, but she wanted her degree. They're both two of the smartest people I ever met. The fact that they don't have a sheepskin on the wall is meaningless. Exactly. Um, but they made sure that my sister and I were going to be educated. And I went to a tiny school uh, in the Midwest. I went to Washington University in St. Louis. Yep. And it's a private university. It's small and it's, you know, it's really friggin' expensive. I can say friggin', right? Yeah, yeah, yeah okay. it's fine. Um, <laughs> Go and, wild with the yeah. friggin'. <laughs> and they, uh, don't spice it up more than that. Yeah, exactly. And, they, and, and you, so yeah. you graduate from, from this university that your parents have sacked. And, and I mean, even before that, all through high school, it was, you, you don't get a job. I was not allowed to have a job in high school for earning money, you know, for spending money. My dad and my mom, your job is to study. Mm -hmm. And if you want something, we'll get it for you as long as you're trying your hardest. So when, if I wanted to go to the movies, if I wanted to you know, join a sports team, you needed equipment, whatever, my parents were like, we'll pay for it, just study. So they, they always And you really me. did that too, you really worked hard. I worked, re I worked really hard, I knew it was important to them, and I knew, I, you know, my dad was a carpenter, and, 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 he, and he worked incredibly hard, and he was very good at what he did, but he also made it clear that, you know, listen, tomorrow I throw my back out, we're in trouble. And and that and, and he never did, thank God. Um, 
but he made it clear that using your your head to make a living is probably an, an easier life. Uh, so when I graduated from college, I just found that it would it was going to be very difficult for me to tell my parents, "Hey, thanks for everything. I'm going to go be a writer and starve and never make a penny." So I went to law school, and I had no desire to go to law school. But I went, and I spent three years in law school, and then I graduated, and I was in massive amounts of debt because the oh, law no. school loans, I mean, over $100,000 in debt. I, went, I remember my second day of being practicing law, I went home to my apartment. I was living in the village in Bleecker Street in Manhattan, and uh, my girlfriend, who is now my wife, was there uh, visiting, and... Um, I broke down and she's like, what's wrong? I'm like, I'm two days into doing it and I know I, I want to stop. And I just spent all this money and I just spent all this time. And I, pra and well, I practiced a little longer after that, like seven years more. And every day was hell. Oh, and dear. it was horrible. Because I was just, uh, being a lawyer, I think is a very honorable profession. Of, yes, just, of course. And, not for me. And, um, and it's a way of looking at the world that you've learned. And now, well... Um, so seven years in a way people say writing is hard like it's one of like the like you sit alone often usually in a room you sit alone and you're with yourself and you're with the work and, yeah. and the blank page and it's very hard it's very hard and that's true but it's also it sounds like it's even harder to be something that you're not to to go to a law office for seven years sounds like that's a much harder uh, path to yeah or road a hoe or whatever <laughs> it's weird because you you look like oh it was hard and it is but you know what like i, I try to you know keep things in perspective there are kids overseas getting shot at right exactly. now that's yeah, hard yeah, yeah. that's hard but it was still something that was making me unhappy is probably a better way to do it and i was becoming a miserable person and uh, i just didn't want to be miserable anymore so i had um i had one week of vacation left one year and my wife and i were gonna go away and i asked her if she would mind that we not go anywhere i had an idea she knew i loved to write and i had an idea for a screenplay and I wanted to write something, so we didn't go away, or we canceled our plans, and I sat in our tiny little apartment in New York uh, on a crappy computer on our kitchen table, and I wrote my first screenplay, and I had seven days to do it, because I had to go back to work, and I just cranked it out, and I submitted it to the New York Independent Film Festival, and somehow it got accepted, and then somehow it won, and then somehow David Chase, who created The Sopranos, who shoots in New York, in Queens, at Silver Cup Studios, um, you know, uh, well, not somehow after the film, after I, I wound up winning the film festival and, and my, I got signed by agents in LA. Oh, congratulations. That's Thanks. wonderful. That was it's great. Like I mean, it was a mirror. I mean, the, if it wasn't a saving that, moment, really. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and my agents kept saying, well, you should really move out to LA. And I'm like, you know, screw you guys. I got to make a living. I've got a job. I've got clients. I've got responsibilities. Get me a job and move out to LA. And they kept saying, it doesn't work that way. The work's out here. You have to come out here, meet people, network. Then maybe we can get you a job. They were right. I was stupid. I wouldn't go out there for months, and then Miracle of Miracles, um, they were able to convince David Chase that there was a script right there from New York, his hometown, that he should read. David Chase read it and said, I, I, got, I, I, mean, I, I got the phone call, 8 p.m. at night, I'm working in my law firm on a motion. It wasn't my law firm, you know. Right, 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 right. right. And uh, they said, uh, Nick, uh, David Chase wants to meet with you, he wants you to write a Sopranos. And that was December of 2001. And uh, I... I wrote The Sopranos. It was right before Christmas. I then waited to get my bonus check from the law firm. I cashed it, waited for it to clear, and then I quit. <laughs> and I moved to L.A. with my wife. That's wonderful. Yeah. Oh, wow. Really, that is, was, that's like a, that's a miracle a, story, isn't it? It, it was a miracle. We, we didn't know anyone in L.A. We didn't have any family there. My wife was a tenured teacher in New York. She gave up her job so I could pursue my dream. 
you know? And uh, we went out there, and I was out there for 16 days and got hired f as a full-time writer on a show called The Guardian on CBS. And uh, I remember, because I remember thinking, I remember 16 days, I remember thinking, if I go a month and don't get a job, this was a mistake. Mm -hmm. I'm not realizing that you go out there for years and not sometimes get jobs, but I was naive and stupid. And it's just been, I mean, I've been working every, ever since, and I've been just so lucky. I get to do what I love. And, uh, and now even more lucky, I've got a novel that borders, it's the first novel Borders has ever published, and they picked me out of everybody. I mean, I'm the luckiest guy you're going to interview. <laughs> I'm telling you, T, you're not going to meet a luckier guy than me. Well, yeah. great. That's why I'm, I'm glad to meet you. Um, yeah. Let's, well, let's take a short break on that lucky note, and, uh, and we'll be right back with Nick Santora. You're listening to The Living Writer Show. Um, today, uh, we have in the studio Nick Santora. And, um, and when, uh, if you're just joining us, uh, Nick was saying how, um, how he's one of the luckiest guys um, I'll ever interview. It's true. <laughs> it's absolutely and true. So I and, um, uh, and I don't know. And uh, 
and and I was saying, well, you also seem like a good person. And well, well no, I'm, I'm a good person because I've been lucky. If I haven't been so lucky, I'd be a monstrous asshole. And <laughs> so I'm certain of that. <laughs> I'm absolutely certain of that. So so anyway, everyone, keep writing. Keep some people will probably tell break. you I still am a monstrous asshole, even with all the luck. But you know, <laughs> well, they're not here. We can't hear them at the moment. <laughs> exactly. They're, yeah. Um, okay. Well, so so Nick, you're in you're in town for um, the Borders book. So it's and right. you mentioned that it's Borders' first book. Yeah. And it's so basically it's it's a Borders uh, is endeavor, endeavoring to have a publishing house and their books are available at all Borders exclusively and, at Borders. Exclu- so what does that mean to you? Like what are the benefits and the and the drawbacks of having a book with Borders, well, not the, not from Canada, right. for wherever else? Yeah. I mean the benefit is uh, these guys know how to sell books. It's their business. Um, they decided we want to get into the proprietary publishing business borders and, and they went looking for what's going to be our first book and they I mean they re- I mean look you only get to do your first book once so they put a lot of time into it they put a lot of I, I still don't know how or why they picked my book of all the books out there I'll take it I'll like I said I'd rather be lucky than good they they for whatever reason they they they, they really took to the book and the benefits are, are are obvious they know how to sell books they know how to move product in a way and I and you know you don't want to call I don't want look I don't want to sound like you know an artsy fartsy guy you don't want to call your art product because it, it's more to you than that but they're a business and let's face it it's a business right and and they know how to take your book and say this is how we should market it let people know that it's a thriller but also it's got a ton of heart in this story mm-hmm. it's a lot like like I mean the show the prison break that I write is a you know I don't write it myself obviously we have a team of, of a handful of writers and the the best writers I've ever worked with in my life, by the way, the super talented people. Um, but a show like that works because it's a thriller and it's exciting and it's edge of your seat and it's cliffhanger. But underneath that is heart. People are in these situations because they love and care for other people. And that's what Slip and Fall is. Slip and Fall is very much based on my own personal experience, which is you don't want to let down people that have done everything in the world for you. So you do something stupid to try to help yourself and get yourself out of a problem and it might get you and your family killed. I mean, that's really what Slip and Falls about. And, and the main and the main character is a lawyer, has I mean, access to the to the law. He's a lawyer. And so basically, you're using your you, you know your knowledge from your your, your workaday life for yeah. se- from seven years. So that, it wasn't that, always. It's like the degree finally came in handy. Yeah, exactly. Finally, <laughs> yeah, finally, I exactly. used for the law. <laughs> exactly. And uh, yeah, and you use that, and I used it. Look, The Guardian was a, was was a law show, Law and Order that I, I right. wrote and produced, Law and Order, and that was a law show, obviously. Um, so, yeah, and, and it kind of comes into play in Prison Break. There's a lot of, you know, uh, legal stuff going on in Prison Break. Um, the best thing about being a lawyer is it teaches you to think critically and logically. And very often in the writer's room in Prison Break, I'll, you know, even if it has something to do with, you know, two guys running through the forest with cops chasing them or whatever, in my mind, I'm saying, well, why would they go this way? Logically, let's talk about that, and right. and it really helps you think that way, and, and it keeps your writing clear. I think a little bit. No, that makes that makes perfect sense. Yeah. That makes that makes a lot of sense. With Borders being, um, but but with Borders being the publisher of your book, um, what about the the idea of that not being available, like at any of like the neighborhood bookstores, like small bookshops, right. or I mean, basically, eventually, it would make it to used bookshops. But um, what about yeah. the, the idea of that, like I mean, the independent bookstore or... Yeah, you know, I mean, 
I'll be honest, because uh, this is my first book, I don't know that much about the publishing world. I know there are independent bookstores out there. They're wonderful. I mean, when I was in school, I'd go and browse through them. And especially in New York City, there's some wonderful, wonder, where I'm from, you know, wonderful, wonderful uh, indies. Um, but Borders, it's weird. It has, it's a big company, but for me at least, so far the experience has been one of a, of a family-esque atmosphere where it has been, we are proud of this story. We are proud of this book. Uh, I, I met with them today. I went to their home offices today, and they 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 gave me gifts. I mean, it was just you know, and it's not like look, I'm not you know, the book's selling very well. I mean, the book became a national bestseller in a week. I mean, I was I mean, for a guy like me who never thought anyone would ever read anything he wrote, who everything I wrote was going on a shelf somewhere, that it it's That's amazing, isn't it? It's, yeah, it's 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 humbling and it's it's almost embarrassing to be honest. Um, it's, it's, you know, bestowed riches you don't deserve. Um, but Borders has been so kind to me. I'm looking at them like they are this, to me, they've been this small family. I you know? see. And, and yeah, you, you know what? Yes. The book, you, you can't get the book at Barnes and Noble. You can get it at Borders. But my response to that is, hey, screw Barnes and Noble. They didn't publish my book. Borders did. <laughs> so go to Borders and buy it, you know? <laughs> <laughs> That'll be, it'll be interesting too, because it is, it's like the first book of, you know, and so it'll be interesting to see what other books are the, 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 the company that you'll, you'll be in, in the family, in the Borders yeah. family of publishing. And um, only because when I was, I went to the, I, I clicked off of the, the the blurb about you coming to town, Nick, right. and, and and saw that it was like a Borders first book, and I was very curious about that. And it seemed interesting because when they were um, talking about like just the, the brief summary of what you know this proprietary publishing, you know that phrase, and yeah. um, it said publishing books by, and then it had like a short list, but the first word was celebrities, and then right. something else, something else, and the last word was authors, and I thought that's kind of an interesting presentation because um i don't know for a way that kind of disturbed me as a as a writer i right. guess just to be honest with you yeah, i was sure. thinking why not writers first or <laughs> authors first and at the end you know and maybe it's just a, a I know marketing why. gimmick or they save the best for last oh uh, okay <laughs> i mean that's got to be the answer they save okay. the best for last <laughs> i would like to be an orange too <laughs> um okay well that's well why don't we um since we've been talking about the book let's can you read something for yeah, us yeah i I'd, I'd be thrilled i mean um the one thing that i i learned from television is you always have to have a good Prison Break's known for having these great cliffhangers, but not just at the end of the episode, at the end of every act break. So people come back after the commercial. I mean, at, at the end of every act break of Prison Break are these insane cliffhangers. You don't change the channel. That's so kind of how, how I wrote many, this book. But how many, so how many would that be? Well, you have the end, you know, you have the teaser. Yeah. Right at the beginning, like, you know, five minutes and you go to commercial. Right. We always have a huge teaser out, then act one, then act two, then act three, and then act four, which is the episode out. So you have to have five huge cliffhangers. And they have on our show, and I don't know any show on TV that has five cliff cliffhangers an episode. No. But if you ask our fans, like these, our fanatic, incredible Prison Break fans, they are constantly on the edge of their seat at the end of end of every act. I so it's working. That that's it's motivating them to stay, like not even switch. For we the don't break. want them to move. Okay. And with um, a book, it's a little different. You know, at the end of every episode, a guy can't be hanging off a cliff. But 
I, I what I try to do at the end of the chapters is, is have um, what I call, you know, verbal outs, where it's just something to, can I say ass? Yeah, yeah. To tickle, tickle <laughs> the reader's ass with a feather. Make okay. them say, oh, that's intriguing. I'm going to turn the page instead of putting this back on the shelf and not finish it. You want people to finish reading your stories. Right, You work right, hard on them. Right. So... Anyway, now watch me read this. People are going to be like, that doesn't sound interesting. But, <laughs> Where's the verbal out? <laughs> yeah, exactly. But um, anyway, I will, uh, I'll read chapter one. Please. That's cool. Thank you. Sure. Uh, my father hired a limousine to take my entire family from Brooklyn to Manhattan to see me graduate from law school. I watched them pour out of the vehicle in front of my apartment building on 113th Street, my stocky father, my portly mother, fat Uncle Vincent and husky Aunt Edith, and finally my chubby sister Ginny. It looked like some kind of fat Italian clown car. I had tried to dissuade my father from getting the limo. He and my mother didn't have much money, and the limousine definitely was not within their budget. He wouldn't listen. This is the proudest day in Principi family history, he told me. We're going to celebrate it properly. My grandfather served under Patton and stormed the beach at Normandy, but me becoming a lawyer was considered the family's finest hour. Makes you think. To my family, and especially my father, my graduation was validation that everything my family had gone through was not in vain. From my mother's father leaving Italy as a stowaway in the bowels of a cargo ship, to my dad's dad and my old man as well, destroying their bodies, one day at a time as overworked, underpaid journeyman carpenters. I was the big payoff, the jackpot, the scratch-off ticket that when rubbed with a quarter revealed three perfect cherries. I was the one who had transitioned the Principi family from blue collar to white, from tool belt to leather belt, from work boot to dress shoe. I was the golden boy. Despite my parents' aspirations for my career, I never wanted to stray far from my roots, even though I was recruited by all the top Manhattan corporate law firms, I turned them all down. Instead, I opened my own practice immediately after law school. I was so damn naive. I thought I'd outsmarted everyone. While my classmates from Columbia were working 100-hour work weeks for behemoth firms such as Sullivan and Rose and Warren Coogler and Curtis, I'd have my own personal injury practice. My father provided a built-in client base. He had worked with every lather carpenter and laborer from Coney Island to the Bronx. These guys knew him and respected him, so why wouldn't they hire his son if they ever got hurt on the job? Construction sites are dangerous places, and guys get hurt all the time, and their lawsuits are very lucrative. Why the hell would I want to work at some stuffy firm representing banks and hedge funds when I could represent people, real people I knew and grew up with, people who truly needed my help, people who wouldn't be able to feed their families if they broke their leg or fractured an arm? I was going to get rich doing God's work. I truly started out with the best of intentions. I realize now that a big reason I went out on my own was because of my dad. I think subconsciously, I knew I could never pay him back for all he'd done for me, putting me through college and all working his ass off so I can get an education. The least I could do was help his union brothers when they needed help the most. That kind of thinking was my first mistake. A son can never pay back his father. It's impossible. You can give him everything in the world and still come up short. Should I keep reading? Okay. <laughs> Probably another minute. Yeah, right. that would be great. Okay, yeah. sure. <laughs> uh, that's not the end of the chapter. I didn't know if I was going too long. No, no. So after graduation, I opened an office above Morelli's Deli in Bensonhurst at the corner of 18th and 71st, just a few blocks from where I grew up. The space was big, but reasonably priced, mostly because on hot days, the smell of head cheese and pimento loaf would seep through the cracks of the old wooden floorboards. There was a reception area with a secretarial station, a large office, a small bathroom, and a smaller office that was so jammed with old furniture boxes and other junk from the prior tenants that you couldn't walk more than a few feet inside. The space needed some work, a coat of paint, some rewiring, and a few holes in the walls had to be patched, but it was nothing my father couldn't fix over the course of a weekend, which he did, of course. It wasn't much, but it was more than adequate for a sole practitioner just starting out. The large office had a great view of the neighborhood. Sometimes when I was at work, I'd look down on 71st and see guys I grew up with riding the sanitation trucks or humping sheetrock for Fortunato Construction for a three-story that was going up across from Morelli's. 
I'm ashamed to say it, but there were times when I looked down on them in more ways than one. Even though I was raised by and grew up idolizing men who work with their hands for a living, once I knew I'd never meet the same fate, I sometimes felt I was a little bit more important than my former peers who dug ditches for a living. Don't get me wrong, I wasn't an elitist, and most of the time I didn't feel that way. It's just that every once in a while, right after I had first opened shop, I'd strain my shoulder, patting myself on the back. My father was so excited when I hung my first shingle. Actually, it wasn't a shingle at all. I had a glass door at street level that opened to a staircase that led up to my office. I put those gold stick-on letters with black trim on the inside of the door. Robert R. Principi Esquire, attorney at law. My dad kept telling everyone in the neighborhood that I was a partner in my own law firm. The old man had a tendency to exaggerate the accomplishments of his children. Once in junior high, Ginny brought home one of those paper certificates she got in gym class for the President's Physical Fitness Challenge. She did more sit-ups than anyone in her class or something like that. But my father told anyone who would listen that his daughter got a personally signed commendation from President Carter. A couple dozen Americans were holed up in some basement in Tehran. Gas prices were skyrocketing. And the United States had just boycotted the Moscow Olympics. But somehow, my dad had convinced himself that Carter could sleep at night because my sister clocked a good time in the shuttle run. But you got to cut the guy some slack. There are a lot worse things you can say about a man than that he thinks the sun rises and sets on his children. Besides, he wasn't the only one who was excited about my new firm. I couldn't wait for my first case to come in. I'd be helping the injured in their time of need, and if I got rich in the process, well, what was the harm of that? I figured I'd settle a few big injury cases after I graduated from law school, save carefully, and be retired within five years. That was eight years ago. That's all. Hey, I see how those verbal outs work. That's, that's little, really nice. That's, yeah. yeah. That's, um, well, let's, we'll take a break now. Mm-hmm. Um, you're listening to Nick Santora. Just read from his, um, his book, Slip and Fall, The Living Writers Show, and on WCBN, FM, Ann Arbor. Yeah. 
Hello, you're listening to The Living Writers Show. My name is T. Hetzel, and I'm here today speaking with Nick Santora, in case you're just uh, uh, tuning in um, on your dial uh, or whatnot, streaming into the ether. Um, so we were um, in the little break there, the musical interlude. Um, Nick and I were talking about, we went back to the, the orange. Um, I would like to be an orange um, <laughs> poem. <laughs> that poem is now officially shared with the world. How wonderful. <laughs> and, and, but, but how you were just, I mean, that was really an important moment for you. It's the yeah. birth of your writer's life, basically. It was, it was the first time I had uh, that feeling. And, it's the, it, and I remember, I, I honestly remember lying in my bed, Waiting for my mom to come in and kiss me goodnight, listening to her say goodnight to my sister, and for whatever reason, words just started coming into my head. And there's this, and I'm sure all you're a writer, uh, all writers, I, I believe all writers feel this way. And I tell my wife that it's an addiction. I get, I know, I get a chemical release when I hang a few words properly. I do. It you you feel different when you write a moment, whether it be in a novel, whether you write an a scene in a screenplay or in a television script or an act out, a line of dialogue, the right word, it's a high. And I think it's got to be like a runner's high. But when a, but I remember being six years old and lying in that bed and coming up with that silly little poem, and it's a dumb little poem, but the words fit. And it just felt, I, I was like, oh my God, that, that, this, this is so great. The words rhyme and they make sense and it's about oranges and oh my gosh, this is fantastic. And I and it's like you're con I'm constantly chasing that feeling. It's why I'm I mean I'm unfortunately why I'm always always writing and working, but I can't not. You know? Which I think every writer feels that way. Yeah. 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 The, and the words fit and there's the words fit. It also sounds like when you were describing it, it's like that the visual, like you said, there was a night light. You could hear your mother's voice coming in from saying goodnight to yeah. the sister, your sister. And um, so it sounds like you're also really driven by the visual, like the visual component in your writing. Um, yes. The, one of the b best compliments I've, I've ever gotten was with a screenplay that I wrote, um, which I'm actually, we're actually shooting it in September. Um, it's, can I plug it? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. God knows when it's going to come out, but it's, <laughs> it's tentatively called Comeback. And I wrote it, and I'm producing it with Ice Cube is starring in it in a dramatic role. It's not like anything I've ever written. There are no prisoners. There are no lawyers. There are no superheroes or villains or stabbing or shanking. It is a heartwarming family film. Wow. Yeah, and when I told my agents <laughs> I was going to write this thing, um, they were supportive, but I, but I could tell in the back of their mind, they're like, we're never going to be able to sell this. This is, <laughs> right. this is the guy who writes prisoners shanking each other in the showers. Exactly. We have a heart wrencher from this guy. Yeah, and it's a, it's, a, it's, it's a dramatic role, but with a lot of comedy in it, a lot of character-driven humor. And I gave it to two people that I really trust um, to, to, to read it before I sent it out. And um, one of my friends, uh, her name's Lindsay, said to me, she's like, I saw every scene. She's like, you write so visually. I can't write a scene unless I can see it. I mean, I have to know where the character steps into frame. I need to know what, you know, what, where are we angling on? Are we panning up? Are we, what are we doing? And, and I think, I think a lot of writers are like that. Um, but you brought this same thing to slip and fall. Yeah. Slip and fall. Uh, when you read it, you see the film. And then the great thing is, is we're getting phone calls every day. You know, can we have the film rights? Can we have the film rights? And, and, and. You know, my agents and I are excited about that. Uh, we got a, a, yesterday, someone said they wanted to make it, but um, it's a story that's personal to me, and I just don't, you know, you just don't want to see it get messed up. And and I'm not saying, look, I, I think Hollywood gets a bad rap. I think a lot of wonderful movies get made all the time. 
Um, some smaller ones, some big ones, very often the smaller ones. Um, but this is a movie that, if it, or a story that if it does get, get made, uh, I'm going to direct it. You're going to be in, very deeply involved in it. Well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, know, I've already written it. Gonna, it. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I'm writing, I'm, I'm I, you know, I'm getting my, my feet wet right, you know, producing this film with Ice Cube, you know, right now. And his production team, the guys over there, you know, Matt Alvarez and John Hayes, are, they're just amazing guys. And, and, and I enjoy working with them. And uh, this maybe maybe this will be the next one. But uh, this is the one story that I can't just hand over. Mm. You know, we, we write other things. Where you're like, here, you'll make this better than me. And I'm not such a narcissist that I think everything I write, I'm going to make it better than anyone else. But this, you know. But this, this you know. story, this story, I live. Slip and fall, yeah, you know. I lived a lot of it. No, look, not the not the thriller aspect of it. I've never been chased by you know killers and you know, stuff like that. But um, the, the mafia isn't mafia after is, you right now. Nick. Not after me, and I never did a deal with them or anything like <laughs> okay. that. But the relationship with the father, the relationship with the wife. The world of personal injury law in New York and the toll it takes on you. The love of the family. That that's that's in my that that's my story. That's in my heart. I'm not, I'm not going to hand that to anybody. That's a, that's yeah. Well, I'm with you on yeah. that. That's and if and if, the, and if the film doesn't get made, so be it. Oh, you it'll know. get made. I can see. We'll you're, see. You're a lucky guy, Nick. I am a lucky guy. You're a lucky guy. It's going to be made. Guy. It's going <laughs> to. <laughs> um, but this makes me think of what was it like then when um, when you. You, your your screenplay won that competition back in 2001, uh-huh. and then David Chase calls you at 8 o'clock, and then he says... Well, it wasn't David Chase. It was my agents calling me to tell me David oh, Chase okay, wanted to meet okay. with me. But but but, but, then, yes. but what's it like when you're, you're invited then to write an episode of The Sopranos? Terrifying. Terrifying. And so, but you did it, and did you write, did you, did you write it solo, or did you go in and work with a team of their writers, or how did... Yeah, I'll tell you the whole process. Okay. Um, the, way it, the way it worked was I went in and met with them first, just so they could, they, you know, I, I met with David Chase, and in the meeting also was Robin Green, who was a writer-producer on the show, and Terry Winter, writer-producer on the show. Terry Winter is uh, an Emmy winner. He's won, he, he, he won a Writers Guild Award. On top of that, he's one of the nicest people I've not only met in the industry, but probably in my life. Just a total gentleman. I went in there, you know, a schlub lawyer from, you know, from Brooklyn. I was, I was practicing law in Brooklyn, and the guy treated me with such respect, and, uh, and so did everybody there. But I remember I was in court the next day, and I met with them, and they asked me questions, and they, they you know, what do you think about that, and do you watch the show, and, you know, all these, all these questions uh, 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 about my writing and, and, and my process, and then I left, and I don't know if I got the, I don't know if they're going to hire me or not, you know, David, this is David Chase's baby, he's got to feel you out, and that night I went home uh, uh, to my apartment, and my, my wife Janine was there, and I, I was jumping out of my skin. Because I knew that uh, that whatever the decision was was going to cha- change the course of my life. If it was yes, you know, game on. Mm-hmm. If it was no, you know, grab a bottle of wine and climb onto the boardwalk and you know just be miserable for the rest of your life and just drink yourself down. And uh, I didn't want to blow that chance. And we got a phone call late that night. It was probably around 9 p.m., which was only six o'clock LA time. And I didn't want to answer the phone. I didn't know what was going on. I didn't know who was calling. So I just let the answering machine answer it. And that's when I got my first real lesson in Hollywood. When more than one agent call you at the same time, it's good news. 
when two agents from the agency call you, it's good news because everyone wants to have credit for having gotten you that job. Oh, because so it was a different voice on your it was, machine. Well, it was like the my, person that you had well, called before, who had called you before. Well, I mean, I was with my agents then, but but oh. you know, very often you'll get a call from your agent. They'll be like, "Yeah, we want you to maybe read the script and see if you're interested in it, or we're going to set up some meetings for you." And it's always one guy. Okay. But when it's the phone call, you got the job. There's like 15 people on the line. <laughs> you know, because they all want credit for doing. It. And I heard a bunch of voices, and I was like, "They sound happy." So I picked up the phone, and they told me I got the job. And I just, you know, I mean, I got jelly legged. I mean, I couldn't stand. I and mean, it was, I couldn't believe it. And we got, my wife and I got in our car. We drove all the way to my parents' house. And, uh, which is, you know, about, a, not all the way, like a half an hour drive. And I went in and I, and I pretended I didn't get the job, that I was crushed. <laughs> and my parents are like, don't worry about it. Well, I'm like, actually, I got the job. <laughs> it's really actually a jerk. You're a strange, you know, strange a jerk man, move. Nick Santora. Yeah. <laughs> it was a jerk move. And, um, and then what you do is after you get the job, you go in, you go in and they give you what's called a beat sheet. And the, every show does it differently. But with The Sopranos, was, I think it was like one page, maybe one and a quarter page. And each, just a bullet point. And each bullet point is a scene. It had like a sentence after it. Tony and AJ do X, Y, and Z. And the next one is, you know, Silvio does ABC. But when you sit there, they tell you, look, these are the motivations of the characters in these scenes. I had to read all the scripts for that scene. Because I was like this... I don't know if it was this, maybe the sixth, seventh, or eighth script that season. And uh, so I had to read all the scripts leading up to it. So I knew all the storylines. I had to sign all these confidentiality agreements that I wouldn't right. disclose anything. And um, then you go and you write. Now, the story was already broken by, uh, you, know, all the, you know, all the writers, you know, Robin Green and, and, and Terry and, Winter. And so, by broken, you mean that's the bullet points. Yeah, the, the bullet, bullet points. points. They came up with the story. Okay. Breaking the story means coming, okay. you know, coming up with the story. So it's their story. I'm just writing the teleplay of their story. I see. So as opposed to um, when you see written by, very often it's someone who, you know, you basically broke most of the story yourself and then wrote it. Or you broke it with a group of people, but then you outlined it and detailed it more. That's kind of how it works on Prison Break. We all break the stories together, but then whoever's turn it is to write goes and outlines it and then writes it. So you get a full written by credit. Um, when you first get into the business, you worry about credits a little bit because you want to make sure people know you're doing your job. As you have more success and you feel more comfortable and more secure, I actually, I love, I, I love when other people get credit on stuff. I love when our younger writers on our staff, I see their names on stuff because they've worked so hard and you just want to support the younger writers, see them move up. That's what's been happening on Prison Break and it's the best thing about that job is we have some, we have uh, three of our former assistants in the past two years, Seth Hoffman, Kalinda Vasquez and Christian Trochi have gone from career assistance in Hollywood to writing for what I think is one of the best shows on television. Oh, that's wonderful. Though. And that, that's really, I mean, that's good. That's good work of you. You're spreading the luck. Well, it's not, it's not just me. I mean, it's not me. It's, it's, it's the entire team of everyone at prison break at the studio, at the network, our showrunner, Matt Olmstead, recognizing the talent of these young writers. Right. Right. You know? And, um, Anyway, I, I don't even answer your questions. I just start talking. <laughs> no, no, I don't even know what the hell we were talking about. <laughs> it's very interesting. Oh, the, 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 the Sopranos process. That's the process. Yeah, well, then you go and write it. Yeah, yeah. And and Terry Winter wrote. Um, uh, there was a there was a, a what we call a C story. You know, a lot of scripts you have A stories, B stories, C stories, and scripts like the main one. You know, and the, and the more minor one is there was a story about AJ that they wound up completely lifting out of the script. They didn't. Want, they decided after that's what they wanted the story to be. They wanted there to be a different story. So Terry wrote that. Um, I had already handed in the script. I was off doing God knows what after that. And um, one of my proudest things is I get to share a teleplay credit with Terry Winter, who not only is an incredibly talented writer, but I consider him a friend. And um, I was in, and, and I actually, I guess I can say it now, I totally 
lie to David Chase. He asked me, you know, are you going to have time to write this? You know, you're a practicing lawyer. I'm like, oh, no, I'm off this week. <laughs> Every time I was going to court, I, I, was in, I was in court all day. I'm going home. I'm writing it like, you know, two in the morning. But to reassure him, you're like, this is Oh, yeah, I've got all the time in the attention. world. Don't worry about it. Yeah, because I just really, I just really wanted that job. Yeah, I can see why. It made, <laughs> yeah. It's made all the difference. It's it, it, the job that's made all the difference. It's, it, it was the springboard, and it, and it let people know that, that I could write. Because you can, and in a way, by doing this, you also prove that you can do anything. Because it's not, I, I didn't understand. Um, I thought that you came, you brought the story, like you broke, the, like you pitched a story to them. Oh no! Um, like you understood where the characters were, but then right. pitched something to them. But it's interesting that you you step into something that that, that they've the the skeleton of their imagination, and you bring your your qualities and imagination to yeah, it, you and have, they trust you with it. That's, you have to be able to execute other people's creative visions in this business. Um, uh, you know, I step into uh, Law and Order. That show has been on for fourteen years. I can't go in there and make it a musical. <laughs> I have to keep Law and Order going the way it was going. That's what the fans like, and that's what they want. That's what they expect. Um, Prison Break. We bring in our, you know, we we promote our assistants to writers on the show. They've got to do what we've been doing. Right, right. If, if they don't, they're not going to be on the show for long. But they, but obviously they do. They're amazing. Yeah. Well, um, uh, well, so so when you're when you're writing the book here, um, are you um, do, are you finding that dialogue is driving the the plot forward in in slip and fall like it would tend to when you're composing for television? Um, the, I mean, obviously the dialogue's important. I I actually found in slip and fall um, when we're in because it's told from the first person when we're in the uh, the, the hero's head, Robert Principe's head. Um, that's really, I think, what moves the story forward in the in the novel. You're you're, it's like you're a voyeur, to to some extent. You're hearing everything this guy's saying. Now, granted, he's telling you, but you're hearing he's telling it to you unfiltered. I mean, unfiltered. He's telling you his deepest fears, his biggest insecurities, his desires, his hopes, his dreams, and it's it's really quite personal. Um, when he's speaking to someone. That's when you edit yourself, and that's when you get, you know, the, 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 the stranger, the fakeness that, mm. that people have, you know, when they're talking. Um, and, right, and, right. It's great. And, 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 I, and I love, there were, there were, there's actually a moment in the book where um, he is speaking on the phone with someone, he hangs up the phone, and the last thing you hear is this horrible thing he says to the person, and then the line is, well, I said that last part. You know, after I hung up the phone, oh, and okay. and that's so you see, you know, the, you see what you you really get to see what this guy's really thinking and what he's doing, and that that I feel that's what really drives the story forward. That makes sense. So that would be like a large difference that that's present in the book that write when you're writing a novel versus writing a teleplay. Yeah, or, I guess. I mean, the the biggest thing I've learned since the first screenplay I wrote is, I think when 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 I when I first started writing, and I and I see a lot of writers do this. Um, and I just think it's part of the process of learning of becoming a better writer and I become a better writer every single day um, And especially with the talented people I work with. I know they're making me a better writer um, You think you have to write To be a writer and I know it doesn't make sense, but you have to overwrite and you know um, I write every day. I mean, I, I think you have to go through the process of writing every day, but what you're writing doesn't need to be overwritten it, it, it you know characters don't need to go on and have, you know, 18 line speeches. Other than me babbling in this interview, people normally <laughs> don't talk that long. <laughs> but it's... Uh, Babylon. Yeah, Babylon and on. Um, 
it's it, you know, and that's like a trick that you have to learn early on. That sometimes you can just say, you know, the character nods understanding, and you see in his eyes X, Y, or Z, and he doesn't have to say a word. And if you've created a really fully formed character, the reader's going to know that that's a powerful moment, and the character doesn't have to say what he's feeling. You just can just mm-hmm. express it with a line. Mm-hmm. And that's like, yeah, people, I, I think like a catchphrase for MFA programs is like, you know, you have to trust the reader. Yeah. You yeah I mean, you have so. to. I mean, and it's, and, 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 I, and I also think in, in, in Hollywood, the problem is, is people are like, well, you can't trust the reader. They're stupid executives. And that's not true. A lot of these people, I mean, a lot of the executives that we deal with, especially at 20th Century Fox and, and, and at the net, you know, at, and at the network, uh, they're very sharp people. They give, they really do give very good notes. And I think um, sometimes if you let, Writers, and this is going to sound like heresy, mm-hmm. because I, I look. I'm, I'm like you know vehemently pro writer. I'm like you know, m- you know, m- militaristically pro writer. Since you were six. Yeah, since I was six. But I'm, but I'm, I'm really, especially when it comes to you know our union and all that stuff. Oh, I see. Um, and, and I don't think writers get enough respect in Hollywood. But that being said, sometimes if you don't have someone there to just not check your creativity, but just to say, you know what. Let's take a breath and look at this. And do you sure you want to go down this road with the story? Or do you sure you want to go down this way with the character? Just think about it. It's just someone to tell, you know, look, writers, writing's narcissistic. At the end of the day, it's listen to what I have to say. And it's crazy, you know, because most people don't give a crap what anyone has to say. Um, But at the end of the day, if, if you don't have someone saying, listen, maybe you want to look at it this way or that way. At the end of the day, your creative vision, but... If you don't have someone doing that, you can get messes. You can get, look at how brilliant and cute and self-aggrandizing I am with my stuff, and you get a mess. Right. Or you're so locked into it that you can't see it from you a different perspective. Right? And there are, I won't name them, but there are TV shows out there in, you know. Go ahead and name I them. I can't. Oh, you can't. That's right. Because you, you, live, you live out there. I live out there. I work out there. And some <laughs> okay. of those people might be hiring me one day. Exactly. Um, okay. But there, but, but there are. But we're in Ann Arbor. No, just kidding. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no one listens to the radio. This talking box is never going to catch on. Radio free Ann Arbor. Yeah. <laughs> but um, there are shows that have failed because um, I think the egos of the writers didn't even want to listen that other people other people might have a good idea. And that actually also translates right into the the world of just novels and fiction. Like in the old days there used to be um sort of that position that that um like almost these um like they're they're mythic editors that you know the, the the like who wrote like who worked with Hemingway his whole career or right. you know or, or, or Thomas Wolfe or you know like these people who were in there mm-hmm. and understood and could be a check like to make the writer accountable or to guide or and and there really doesn't seem to be that as much in today's and and if there if there are editors out there who <laughs> would like to please let me know because <laughs> if I'm uh, wrong about this but um, it just seems like so what you say makes total sense yeah there, i mean I, I can honestly say that there are executives out there i'll i'll, I'll give a name of one there's a, a, a woman named Lindsay sloan works for the usa network that does some really good cable television has wonderful television right now usa and fx and she gives some of the best notes of anyone I've ever met in my life mm-hmm. and i think she just has an incredible skill for it you know and there's nothing wrong with saying you know what she reads stuff i write and she gives me notes and they help make it better that doesn't make me any less of a writer no you know no because you could also say no to, but but you're yeah, and I do say them. and yeah. I do say no to some of her notes. I'm like, yeah, you know what? I understand what you're saying, but I think I, I really think it works this way because of this. And she's like, you know what? It can work that way. Mm-hmm. But um, you know, for for anyone in any endeavor to say, 
the way I'm doing it is the perfect way and there's no other way, it might work, but you're setting yourself up for probably a fall. Mm. A slip and fall. A slip and fall. <laughs> back in the... That's right. Back to slip. Nice segue. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, well, we're supposed to be talking about the book. Buy the book. Buy the book. Slip and fall. Buy the book. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> at a Borders near you. At, at exclusively <laughs> at Borders. Slip and fall. And um, well, because bef- um, because we are we're sort of getting. I think. Well, we've got some time left. Let's. let's... I could do this all day. This is this is incredibly fun. Oh, thank you so much for oh. being here. And without the like the the red eye and considering oh. that you've you're you're on the. I'm half asleep. I'm like trail. I'm like high from lack of sleep. So I. You know, that's why I'm rambling. Um, well, then maybe one day when you're back through town, you come in and be very sedate the yeah, next exactly. time, right? Can I take some water? Oh, please. Thanks. Yeah, have a sip. Because I, I, I wanted to put you on the spot now about Beauty and the Geek. Just oh, for a, my gosh. Shall we have a laugh? Or is it not? I, if you're a writer for a reality show, what does um, that even mean? Well, it's, I'm not the writer of the reality. There's no writing. I mean, there's no <laughs> writing on that reality show. It, it's, it, it, there's, a, there's a big riff. Writers worry that reality is taking over television and blah, blah, blah. I kind of feel, and I'm a writer. I'm not a reality guy. Um, That being said, there's been reality television forever. It just got named reality television a few years ago when you had the first monster hits. I remember when I was a kid, there was a show called Real People. Right. You know, and there was, what do you mean, right? You probably weren't even born when I was a kid. (laughs) No. I remember uh, okay, real do you remember? and like yeah yeah uh, and those amazing and or something like those yeah those amazing animals and yeah and Bob Saget's show the America's Funniest Home Videos which is still on after four hundred years <laughs> you know I mean it's the, move the, on Bob move yeah, on well he's not doing it anymore but <laughs> oh, okay. but um there's you know it's always been around um and frankly re- reality television now it, it, the garbage gets weeded out really fast really fast. The way writers have been hurt most, I feel, by reality TV is that um, during the summer, back in the old, old, olden days, I'm 35, so the olden days, I'm kind of <laughs> old. Um, back in the olden days, during the summer, you'd get repeats. During summer, my sister and I would watch the happy days that we missed during the regular season. There are no more repeats. And you get killed on what we used to get, residuals. I don't get residual checks really that much anymore. Hardly any shows repeat anymore. During the summer now, they create... For, the, for those two months, we're going to create an eight-week reality show. And that's kind of where you get hurt. With Beauty and the Geek, um, I had a friend, a buddy of mine, who had called me up and we were talking. And he had said, and he's not in the business. He's a lawyer in New York. And we were talking about the state of television and reality. And I was, you know, can I say bitching? Yeah. I was bitching and moaning <laughs> about, about, reality, about reality shows. And, and he had said, yeah, you know, they're supposed to be... Uh, they're supposed to be so tense at the end and they're voting people off and it's so not tense and it's, there's no excitement and drama. He's like, you know what, I have drama? And it was, it's a very, I'm, I'm just going to stay for the record. Yes. It's a friend of mine from college. Very sexist, non-PC comment <laughs> that I didn't agree with. Get ready, Ann Arbor. Get ready, Ann Arbor. He's like, do you know what would be drama? Watching a dumb blonde trying to do a calculus problem. Like I said, that's his words, <laughs> not mine. And he kept, and, and he's like, wouldn't that be a good reality show? And I thought, and I said, well, no, because that's mean. Nice. But what if there were people competing and there were, you know, women who have been told their whole lives, you're just looks. Hmm. And you have guys that are told that your whole life, you're just brains. You have nothing to offer. You're not a real man. You're mm-hmm. just a nerd. Mm-hmm. And girls are like, don't, you know, and the girl's been told, don't worry your pretty little head over it. Someone else will figure it out for you. What if we bring them together? They're actually competing for money, but they help each other. 
And we have the first reality show on television where people are competing and no one's mean to each other and it's actually has a positive vibe. And we're taking people from different worlds and saying, you know what? You can intermingle. It's not <laughs> such a big deal. And maybe you can help each other find things in, in each other that you don't know are there. So it's about, so you're saying that it's also about um, winning like a cash prize, not just like that that they're supposed to be um, getting married the next, because some of the reality no. shows, don't they get married? Yeah, no, Beauty and the Geek is, is they, they I, I, at the end, they, it's like they win $250,000 that they split okay. um, each, and it's just the team that wins the most challenges and stuff, but, but what it is is their challenges make them come out of their comfort zone. We had geeks, you know, geeks in quotes, because they're not really geeks, I mean, the, 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 the title is tongue-in-cheek, um, but we had uh, geeks who in season one had to go and do stand-up comedy. These are guys that are scared to talk to people. And we forced them to come out of their box and talk to strangers. Oh, well, you know what? This is, um, we're actually getting the, the signal yes. from on high um, that this has, been, this has been such a quick hour. Sure. Um, Nick, and this is the first time that I've ever gone through one of the, like we didn't, you didn't have a break, so I hope you're okay during oh, one of the, yeah, we, we didn't, we knocked through this. Um, but um, so thanks, Nick Santora, well, thank for, for coming on to the show. Um, thanks for helping me plug Slip and Fall. It's Slip and Fall. And, and what's the one with Ice Cube that's coming up, a project to look for? Oh, yeah, uh, it's, it's tentatively t titled Comeback, and it's a beautiful okay. football movie starring Ice Cube. It's, a, it's a, okay. about a little girl who plays football. It has nothing to do with sports. It's about heart. Okay, it's about heart. But, and but most slip, importantly, slip and fall. Slip and fall, <laughs> also about heart. A, a lot of heart. A heart, and there's a, thriller, a, law, a law thriller mafia. It's a thriller, but the reason the guy does the bad things is because of love. That's wonderful. Thanks, Great. Nick Santora. You've been listening to The Living Writers Show. Um, my name is T. Hetzel. Many, many, many thanks to Josh Landau for stepping up today, helping us out with the engineering. And uh, yeah, until next time. This is Free Speech Radio News for Wednesday, July 4th, 2012. In Los Angeles, I'm Dorian Marina. Coming up, Independence Day in the U.S. can be a time to reassess the direction of the country, the past struggles that secured rights and freedom, the challenges to power that rose up in the face of adversity, and the inequalities that still exist. The law specifically says that no one with power shall abuse the common people. You have the right to ask for what you want and what you need. Whether it's housing, whether it's uh, food deserts, that's across the board. We are at the top of every bad list there is, the black and Latino community. In a special program today,